Practical Teaching, real educators talking about real teaching. I'm Scott Muller. Any teacher who has been in education for a number of years will tell you that every single year, if you are mindful about your practice, you are going to grow. And your perspectives on strategies and different movements in education is going to change year to year. Now, I'm not going to pretend to speak for all teachers in terms of the perspectives that change year to year, but I will tell you what has changed most drastically for me the longer I've been in education, and that is professional learning communities. Professional learning communities have been called different things throughout time. It can be called collaboration, it can be called team teaching, or simply it can be called, I'm a first year teacher and I need some help. But the common factor in all these terms are teachers coming together to improve the learning environment in their classrooms. However, if you talk to someone who has been in education for multiple years, they will tell you success stories and horror stories in regards to collaborating with other teachers. One of my horror stories took place during my first year of teaching. I was teaching world history at the time and working with one other teacher in a collaborative team. Collaboration was encouraged by administration, but there was no oversight and accountability for teachers to collaborate successfully. This meant that teams that worked great together continued to, and teams that were struggling to collaborate didn't receive support. My team was one of these. The issue really came down to the arrogance of this other person I was working with, as well as, admittedly, my own arrogance. I had worked hard to develop particular strategies that I was good at in education, things that I had practiced, things that I had researched, and things that I wanted to implement. I had different historical time periods that I was passionate about. I had different perspectives on what should and should not be taught in the classroom. I had particular perspectives on how students should be assessed in the classroom. And unfortunately, the person I was working with didn't agree with me on these foundational ideas. I liked performance tasks. They liked multiple choice tests. I liked a thematic approach to teaching history. He preferred a chronological approach. I hated using the textbook and preferred primary resources so students could investigate these historical time periods. My collaborative partner relied on the textbook as a cornerstone of his classroom. Because of these differences, we decided to collaborate as little as humanly possible. And again, because there was no administrative oversight, there was no one to check to make sure we were accountable in our collaboration. We gave different summative assessments to students. We had different projects. We didn't norm our grading. Even our formative assessments were different. The only thing that if an administrator walked into my classroom and his classroom would see is that we were covering generally the same time period. I have to be honest. I'm ashamed about that year of my teaching career. Instead of going to an administration and asking for their support or their feedback to make sure that we are meeting the expectations that are set forth by our school, I decided that I knew what was best and I wasn't even willing to listen to this other person because I thought his ideas were outdated. And even if they were, I was doing our students a disservice because there was no consistency on what students should know, understand, and be able to do in the classroom. We didn't collaborate to make sure that students who were struggling could demonstrate proficiency on standards. 
We didn't even teach the same standards. So that following year, whichever teacher got the mix of students would find that these students had completely different experiences in their class the previous year, making that teacher's job harder. It wasn't until a few years ago that I learned about professional learning communities and how they can be done in a proper way. Shirley Horde describes professional communities as teachers coming together in a group to create a community to learn. Richard Dufour and Robert Eaker in their book Professional Learning Communities at Work outline the strategies for schools to create professional learning communities. And it's based around four questions that each individual school has to answer. The first question is, what should students know, understand, and be able to do in their classes? And those things that students need to learn, understand, and be able to do should be consistent within grade levels or content areas. The second question is, how will students demonstrate mastery or proficiency over the standards or skills that are being taught in that classroom? That means that the summative assessments and formative assessments of those grade levels or content areas are the same. The third question for professional learning communities is how do we help students who have demonstrated advanced proficiency on the skills and standards in the classroom? That means how do we scaffold up for those students and make sure that they achieve a year of learning? And the fourth question is how do we support students who are struggling to demonstrate proficiency in the skills or standards that are being taught in a grade level or content area. Now one thing that is important about these four questions is they are completely student-centered. And they are focused on the appropriate ways to make sure that every student gets a year of growth, no matter how high or low they might be coming into the classroom. However, and I think this is where a lot of schools fail at professional learning communities, everyone from the superintendent to the administration to the teachers need to be on board with this philosophy. From the school mission to the day-to-day -day classroom environment, these four questions have to be at the center of the learning community, and they have to be constantly reflected upon and improved year to year. Teachers have to be open to working in these collaborative groups, understanding that working together can solve more problems in the classroom and to create a stronger learning environment. Administrators need to create the time, because that's one of the largest obstacles to PLCs, is creating the time for teachers to collaborate. They need to keep teachers accountable to focus on those four questions. They need to provide training for teachers to work efficiently in professional learning communities, and they have to be reflective on this process as well. When this happens, not only is student learning the center of that school, but also students and parents know that every student is achieving one year of growth in their classes, and that students are learning and being assessed on the same thing regardless of the teacher that they are with. I didn't have that support structure from administration in my nightmare scenario of collaboration. And to be honest, I wish I had. I wish I had been called out on my unprofessional, 
interactions with my colleague, for being distracted about not liking his perspectives on education instead of focusing on the kids, and ultimately hurting my students' long-term education. I should have been more open to working collaboratively. My administrator should have kept me accountable. And unfortunately, my students paid the price for this. So, what does an effective professional learning community look like at a school? Not just here are the things that schools should implement, but how does that process work? What challenges are there from staff? To answer that question, I contacted Aaron Willett. Aaron is the principal at an international school in Southeast Asia and has worked very hard this year to implement a professional learning community at his school. To any teachers or administrators listening to this podcast who are interested in PLCs and how they can effectively work in a classroom, I hope you get as much out of this conversation as I did. Without further ado, Aaron Willett. Aaron Willett, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Before we get into our conversation on PLCs, I wanted to ask you, what got you into education? Why did you become a teacher in the first place? I think it was a because you know, when I, once I got my first job, I was quickly promoted to one of the trainers that trained the new hires, and it kind of seemed like every job after that, I ended up being some type of trainer or educator in some way. So it was just kind of the, the theme that came along with it. Um, and so in college, I was an uh, economics major, and I thought I kind of wanted more, something that would be more fulfilling. And I thought how nice it was when I was you know, treat, teaching people new skills, new procedures, that that's kind of something that I wanted to do more of. And I kind of just went in that direction and then fell in love with it from there. So in this conversation, we're talking about PLCs, and for those who might not be uh, familiar with PLCs, what is the rationale for adopting professional learning communities? Uh, I like to say that we learn better when we learn together. Um, It's one of those initiatives or programs you can put into a school that is not really an initiative. It's not one of the things that are going to cause teachers more work. It actually, done right, it, it makes teachers... Uh, lessen some of the, the workload, but also have the stronger lesson planning, more diverse use of differentiation strategies. What it does is it brings it, it brings the strengths of other people into the strengths of the team, and any deficiency within the team, it brings it takes those away. So it utilizes the strengths of all teachers and strengthens all teams. So it's really one of those rationales or mindsets that have a positive impact on teachers as learners, but also as the students that they teach, uh, because the strengths, the strengths that uh, the teachers bring to the table get kind of disseminated throughout the whole staff. And it has measurable positive impact on student learning. You know, when we, when we implemented it in, at ASK, we saw MAP scores go up, and we saw RIT levels, the amount of uh, uh, RIT referrals go down, and the, the levels go down as students you know, received a better education. It gets teachers out of that isolation mindset. You know, they get to talk to each other, they get to share ideas, they get to develop and understand different strategies together. It really has a lifting effect on, on everyone at the school site. 
So really the idea of PLCs is it takes teachers from learning in isolation to learning as part of a community and sharing what they've learned with other teachers, uh, collaborating with other teachers to really increase the learning efficiency in the classroom and creating a community where everything is about how do we, how do we get students to learn more effectively. Absolutely, yeah. It focuses, it focuses all teachers on learning and it kind of it brings all the stakeholders moving in the same direction towards achievement, towards learning. Uh, so how did you approach your school with the PLC framework? Um, we looked at it as something that we were going to work on over long term, you know, like a three-year, five-year project because we wanted to change the culture of the school, you know, shift the entire paradigm of, uh, of the school and get teachers to work with each other instinctively. Because up till then, it was kind of a, you know, a suitcase curriculum, isolation teaching, and we wanted them to just have that collaboration come naturally um, through the shift in the culture. And uh, we did that, you know, step by step and, and strategically as much as possible. So we, you know, overtly said we want to move towards this paradigm with the teachers. We said we're going to go to a PLC community. We want you guys collaborating. So the leadership created structures to facilitate that collaboration, um, building in embedded PD time and meetings, uh, collaboration time and meetings, and then adjusting the schedule for which the teachers taught so that the teaching teams had, they could get together during their off periods to plan together. So we, we really worked overtly to make that happen. And then, you know, we used some covert style things as well. You know, we, we introduced norms, not saying this is part of the PLC model. We just introduced norms, uh, meeting norms so that we could steer the conversation towards learning, uh, and kind of create that culture of collaboration. So really, it wasn't a, hey, next week we are suddenly all doing this. It took the time to create the proper environment for teachers to work together and learn together. Because as you had mentioned, if teachers don't have the time in the day and if administration doesn't allow for the schedule for teachers to get together, it's not going to happen effectively. Yeah, it really takes, it takes that framework put in place and you have to have that organizational structure put in place to facilitate the collaboration that's going on as, as much as you possibly can. Um, it also takes some modeling as well. So we, we provided some modeling for what proper collaboration looks like, like I said, establishing norms, but also how to look at data together, how to plan common assessments together. Uh, so putting in a, a model like the DataWise model from uh, Richard Mornane, uh, that having that model in place that allows them to take the first steps when analyzing student data, take the first steps when building common assessments. I really love that you mentioned the idea of modeling this process because I think too many times administrators say, here's what we're going to do, but don't go through the steps to make sure everyone's prepared to adopt that effectively. Yeah, and that's kind of the, one of the most important parts is giving giving teachers a structure or a model in which they can work through to build that collaboration and build that, that norm of, of collaboration. So what opposition did you encounter from teachers when the PLC was implemented? I'm sure not everyone suddenly just jumped on board. 
Yeah, we we kind of expected some reluctance to it because, um, you know, change is always hard, especially in education because so much is at stake. If you change something that doesn't work, you're affecting all of the students. And so, you know, when we do make changes, we want to make sure that it is, you know, research-based and that there's actual evidence that proves this will be effective and this will increase student learning and student achievement. Um, so we... we kind of expected that so we really worked to show the teachers that it's just not another initiative you know this is a, this is a school-wide change but it's also a shift in the entire educational field that we want to get out of our isolationist boxes and get together and collaborate more um, but there was some initial reluctance for opening up their classrooms um, and doing regular walkthroughs helps kind of gets them used to having people coming in there um, doing instructional rounds we called them walkabouts but having instructional rounds, and that was more of a teacher-centered approach to opening up their classrooms. So it wasn't so much the administration coming in saying, uh, we're going to look to see how you're teaching. It was teachers coming in to say, I'm going to look to see how you're teaching and also come and see how I'm teaching and give me feedback. So it was more of a, a teacher-based to get the teachers all right with opening up their classrooms to people and, and sharing what they do as a professional. Um, and that's a really big shift in, in education is to open that up and get and share your ideas and it takes a bit of a bit of courage to do that because you open yourself up to criticism but you also open yourself up to the benefit of people saying I like this I'm going to take that from you if you don't mind but and and, and they can share with you um, there was some reluctance in sharing their teaching methods but I think that all faded away once the common planning times came in and they started meeting regularly and they started sharing regularly I think that became a point of pride for most teachers to say, hey, I have this new strategy, I want to share it with you. And then when people tried it and they got feedback saying how well it worked in their classroom, it kind of, the success builds upon success and you get that, the train rolling. But the biggest, the biggest pushback we got was when planning common assessments. Uh, because, you know, teachers are saying, well, I don't know if they're doing what I'm doing in class. I don't, you know, they're not teaching what I'm teaching the exact same way. So if I give them the exact same assessment, my students might not do as well. So there was, you know, the, the fear that was built up. But once they started to, to plan together and plan the assessments together, they found that it was, it was actually very beneficial to have everyone's voice within the assessment because the assessment became much stronger and much more authentic when they had all those eyes on it and all the all the minds thinking towards the same thing so I, I think of the the grade six english team that that we had, we had last year did a really good job they were a highly effective collaborative team and it came to the point where if someone would design a, an assessment he would design the, the framework and then everyone else would have input on exactly what the other thing all the other parts of the assessment would be so when it came to all the classrooms everyone had a hand in it and it was well-rounded varied assessment that, had, that, that addressed the entire standard. So really it was a combination of getting teachers used to a structure where administrators were more present in their classrooms more often, but also creating encouragement for teachers to share what they're doing and be willing for other teachers to see what they're doing as well. And when they saw the positive benefits of that, when everyone was able to support one another and not just criticize one another, then people really started to buy into the process. Yeah, and it happened pretty quickly. It wasn't something that it was. It wasn't something that happened, you know, over an entire year. We had, you know, we had to constantly force our way in. It was really 
they practiced it, they did it, and it was almost, you know, instant buy-in because they saw the benefit to it almost immediately. Um, but there was that initial reluctance to relinquish control. And once again, what we had to do as administrators, the key support that we could give our students or provide our teachers was that we were in there during their planning time. We were sitting in there with them. We weren't saying anything. That's a micromanaging warning there is we, we wouldn't get involved with the actual planning, the nitty gritty of the planning, but we were there to focus the conversation towards learning. You know, how, how do you know that students have learned the standard? You know, what will we do if the students do not learn the standard? Uh, and just ask those, you know, kind of simplistic questions, but focused questions on what, what the purpose of the, the assessment was. Um, but it was to show the teachers that we're there with them. We're, we, you know, we're asking you to do something. We're there with you. We're doing it with you. Uh, and we're providing that support. And I think when teachers see you not only in these meetings, but see you as a supporting role, not trying to micromanagement, micromanage them or tell them exactly what to do, but be in there, ask someone who's going through this process with, with them, that changes their perspective of your role in this process as well. So what process did your school go through to help teachers identify what students should know, understand, and be able to do? This was, I think this is the true strength of the BLC, is getting everyone on board on what students need to learn. Um, what we did is we did a, a, uh, a model where we unpacked the standards together um, in departments and as a whole school. So we were doing this all at once in a, in a department meeting. We started the unpacking process, and it started with what do you think are the most important standards that you need to teach? So if you, you, know, if you only had a, a couple of lessons to teach, you know, a couple of units to teach, what were the lessons that you, uh, what are the standards that you'd have to have to fit in? Um, and then that was, you know, one color, and the other color was uh, what standards you think are important, but you can skip if necessary. And then the other one was what standards uh, do you feel are not important? Um, and that allowed the teachers to see all the standards, evaluate all the standards, and then kind of prioritize what standards they feel are the most necessary. Um, and once we were able to do that, we were able to align the teaching within the, uh, within the grade levels, and we then planned ways to address the learning in a logical order. One of the things I really liked what you mentioned there, Aaron, was that this wasn't the administrator saying, hey, here are the things that you're going to be teaching. It was a collaborative process where the teachers were able to identify out of whatever standards that we have what are absolutely essential what might not be essential but are important and might we not be able to do throughout the course of that year. And I think that's one of the keys to the BLC model too, is not only do the teachers have to relinquish control uh, of everything, the administrators do too. The administrators have to be okay with whatever decision the faculty decides. Uh, it's, not, um, it's not a top-down approach, it's a collaborative approach. So what, was you, what is the rationale for cumulative, summative, and formative assessments in PLC teams? You noted that initially teachers were hesitant to have common summative assessments. What was your rationale to them? Uh, having a common assessment allows teachers to look at student work and gain meaningful information from it. Um, if, if we're comparing two different summatives to a, a teaching team, it's hard for them to have a meaningful discussion about what the students are learning. But if you have that same, that common assessment, you can look at the, the outcomes that the students are giving you, the evidence that they're providing, and you can 
evaluate it, analyze it, and make decisions on, on that data versus if you have two random sets of data. And so it allows the, the teaching teams to have really meaningful conversations about student achievement, about where they need to focus their instruction. Uh, it allows the teachers to identify if there's a student learner problem or if it's a problem of practice. So if, it, you know, if it's a student learner problem, they can address that learner. If it's a problem of practice, they as teachers can address that problem of practice. And it, it just gives us an avenue for discussing student learning using real life classroom data. Uh, it is, there's little to assume, but a lot to learn. And it's not one of those large scale normative based tests like the MAPS or uh, the ISA. You're really using your homegrown data with your students. Uh, and I think that's very powerful when you look at that as a teaching team. You can, you can really pinpoint exact issues that you need to address as, as either as a teacher in instruction or for your learners that you have in the classroom. So really, it allows for accurate data. If we're trying to determine if students are meeting the standards that we have and how can we scaffold them up or how can we differentiate for students who aren't meeting those standards, we can't even determine that unless there's a common assessment that we can get data from. Yeah, absolutely. So what does your school do to support students who are struggling academically? Uh, due to an ability gap. Maybe uh, they have some deficiencies in uh, English, the English language. What does your school do to intervene in those situations? Well, we have, we, you know, we use the RTI models to, to, when we intervene with the student, but it's really how do we identify these students? That, I think that's the most important part. And it's the, the specific purpose of a well-established team uh, is to try and find these these gaps in learning. And so the first level is, you know, we have grade level meetings that are beneficial when identifying these students and teachers can, can talk within the grade level about some of the, the, the learning issues they're seeing with their students. But, you know, that's, those meetings can quickly get out of hand. If you've ever been to one, you know that it can, it can kind of get out of hand unless you have um, very specific meeting norms and oh, you stick to your meeting norms and, and so you don't you don't get off topic you don't get off task and you really focus on the learning um, and not on all, all, any, any other thing that can get in the way but once we've identified the learner um, and then we, we try to use three points of data to really identify and intervene as quickly as possible as, as soon as we see something that's a red flag we like to get other points of data on that student as quickly as possible so we can identify where the ability gap is, where the achievement gap is, and so that we can step in with our, support, our, our student support team and help address those uh, deficiencies or uh, our needs. On the flip side of that, part of the professional learning community is to think about how do we support students who are struggling academically due to a lack of will. Sometimes it's not necessarily a issue of ability, but an issue of will itself. So what does your school do to address that? I think identifying the root of this uh, motivational thing is very crucial to making, the, uh, making sure that it's not a developmental issue. You know, sometimes we say they're just lazy, they're just lazy, but when in actuality they have a developmental issue that hasn't been recognized by using other points of data or other, other means of assessments. Um, and so that part is key. And then the second part is really getting the parents involved. Um, and if we're lucky enough to have parents that are involved, a lot of these motivational issues can be uh, worked out 
with the parents and with the student. And then, I, you know, we can't leave out the variable of motivational strategies in the classroom, differentiation, using goal, learning goal setting strategies. Um, you know, sometimes the motivational issues can be because they are bored, possibly because they are high achieving students and we're not addressing their need for enriched instruction or enriched assessments. But it's really, we need to encourage teachers to, to make learning personal, to give them choice, uh, engage the students as much as possible in their own learning and provide a variety of differentiation strategies that, uh, that will get them motivated, get them engaged, get them involved. And I know that we can say that and it's all going to work out because we said we're going to differentiate and it's going to solve all of our problems. Um, <laughs> <but> <laughs> it, it takes... It does take more than differentiation. It takes parent involvement. It takes the student recognizing his own learning goals or her own learning goals, and it, it also takes the, uh, the the entire teaching faculty to understand: is this developmental or is this really motivational? And if it's motivational, we can look at the strategies for motivating students, but we don't want to make the mistake of saying he's just lazy when really we could address, or she's just lazy when really we could address. Uh, a developmental issue that might be there. So what are some suggestions that you would have to scaffold instruction for students who are demonstrating high achievement on these standards? Typically, teachers tend to focus on that middle group or students who are struggling, and we sometimes neglect those students who can be challenged more. So what does your school do to scaffold for that? That's a good question because... Oftentimes, schools will focus on, you know, we teach in the middle group and we support and scaffold the lower students, but we kind of forget about the students who just do their work fine and, you know, get A's and we don't look at ways to challenge them further. They're the easiest group to forget about. Uh, and and that's, that's sad to say, but it's true. But I, I say don't give more work. They get more rigorous work. And I think as, as a classroom teacher, the best thing you can do is use differentiation strategies that give students choice and give them that rigorous choice and allow them to take that step uh, into more difficult work. Not more busy work, but the difficulty though, the DOK level uh, has to be there so that they can, they can get the benefit from it. So individualized learning strategies uh, and providing student choice I think is the best method to kind of include these high achieving students in the regular classroom and, and challenge them. That's something that uh, I deal with a lot in my history classes and even the capstone course itself. I have some students who are still working with understanding the perspectives of various sources or trying to analyze the evidence that they're providing with, but some students are already proficient at that. So I have to work with different skills with them, for instance, addressing synthesis, or maybe I have to give them more rigorous primary sources or not give them as much as many resources with those primary sources so they have to use more of the analytical tools. It really is about giving them more difficult work because I, I know a lot of times it's Aaron comes in and says oh, I'm done with my math all right well here here's five more math problems do that and it's not really fair if we're not bumping the DOK levels up. Exactly and also it hurts the credibility of the teacher if these students feel like well my teacher really isn't helping me learn I'm just doing what I have to do, then it hurts their perceptions of you. Absolutely, yeah. 
So you're not really teaching them if they're giving them the same thing they already know. Exactly. So how, as an administrator, do you maintain accountability so that all teachers are supported in this PLC framework? Something that I found very important when looking at professional learning communities is a structure at the administrative level to support teachers and keep teachers accountable while this transition is taking place. So how do you maintain accountability for your teachers? It's a, it's, it's a modeling process, it's a monitoring process, and it's a focusing process. Modeling the collaboration and adhering to the agreed-upon norms, giving them that model in which they can build common assessments, look at assessments together, do data walks together, and then being there to, to monitor the process. So if it's, if it's a data-wise process, check in the progress, you know, see see if their next step and their actions, their next action uh is going well if they're continuing to do the regular assessment check-ins. Um, sit in on the on the data walks together with the, when they come together with the with the common assessments. S have that conversation with them. Join in the conversation without micromanaging, but be there with them and, and, and walk the walk and talk the talk. Uh, as, as administrator, if you're going to ask them to do that, you have to do it yourself uh, and be in there with them. Um, I used to sit in on CPT's uh, common planning times when we first uh, implemented them and just kind of helped with the establishing the norms. And at first, we would actually say the norms out loud. You know, we, we're all here with some positive intentions. We're going to be here on time. We're going to collaborate uh, positively. Um, we're, it's okay to disagree with each other, but when putting ideas on the table, uh, they have to be positive, things like that. So. That became less and less as we became more efficient and, and more used to the process. Um, and it came to the point with that grade six team where I didn't really have to sit in on the on the planning meetings. They were planning fine. I would just check in to see how they were doing in their classrooms. It, it didn't need so much oversight, but they knew the process and they were they you know, they had the buy-in and they knew it really well and they saw the benefit from the the grades they were getting from their students from the learning they were seeing in the classroom and the actual assessments that they're creating as authentic pieces of, of learning. And then the focusing part is just keeping keeping it simple to the to the core questions of PLC. What do we want each student to learn? How well or how will we know when each student has learned it? How will respond how will we respond when students experience difficulty in learning? How will we extend and enrich learning for students who have demonstrated proficiency? And if you focus it to those as the as the administrator, the professional educators will will handle everything else. So, I I, I don't have this question on uh, the previous list of questions that I sent you, Aaron. So I apologize for putting you on the spot. But if I'm a teacher and I'm working in a grade level team or a content level team and I have some people in my team, or maybe just a person in my team, who just is not conforming to these norms of collaboration, who is resistant to this process, what is my recourse as a teacher when I have someone in my group that is not buying in? That's where the norms of collaboration really need to be in place. Uh, you can always refer back to the norms and say, you know, we agreed, these are the norms, we all agreed to these norms at the beginning of the year, you're not following them. And it, it, you know, if, if they can't buy into the, the collaboration, you, you know, you can get the administrator involved. But normally if you have a solid set of norms, teachers and professionals, they won't, they'll adhere to those because they, they agreed on them and they're, they're set in place 
for the good of the team, not the good of the person. And, and if that person can't see that they're a part of a team, then you do have to get the administrator involved and you do have to you know, have a frank discussion with this person saying, you know, we are a collaborative team. You know, get with the program or get out. Well, I appreciate your candor in that because I, th I think sometimes people are too scared to actually admit that. But yeah, if you're not in with the program, then you're not going to be in the program. Yeah, if they can't see the benefit of being in a collaborative team, they're probably not the teacher that you want in the classroom. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, Aaron, thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, I certainly learned a lot and I appreciate you for coming on. I appreciate it, Scott. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks for listening to the podcast. So, what did you think? What points did you agree with in our conversation? What points did you disagree with? Let us know on our Twitter hashtag, RealPracticalTeaching. And if you have any suggestions for topics to address in the future, you can let us know there too.